we've got to think carefully about how we draw attention to race, how we're conscious about race, because we've got to do it in a way which at the same time makes sure to communicate to people that race is not some biological objective reality, that it is a social construct. And I think that's where we've really fallen down on the job in the United States. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Anne Morning. She is a professor of sociology at New York University who has spent her career studying race. She's the author of two books on the subject. The first is The Nature of Race, How Scientists Think and Teach About Human Difference. And the second is An Ugly Word, Rethinking Race in Italy and the United States. Anne has also served on the U.S. Census Bureau's National Advisory Committee on Race, Ethnic, and Other Populations. A lot of what we think we know about race does not stand up to scrutiny. I think that anyone taking an interest in American politics would benefit from learning from Anne and her work. We had a great conversation about her career and how race intersects with American politics. So you should listen. After a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Professor Anne Morning of NYU. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. So, Anne, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Anne Morning, and I am the James Weldon Johnson Professor of Sociology at New York University. I am a native New Yorker who is also one of those rare academics who managed to find a job in her hometown. So I've been at NYU for almost 20 years now. Tell me about your parents and the home that you grew up in. So I was raised in New York by African-American parents who were transplants to New York. My mother had grown up in Los Angeles, and my dad was from Cleveland, Ohio. My, my parents were also very much part of what we might consider the Black bourgeoisie in that they were from very privileged backgrounds. Their parents were college graduates. My parents were college graduates. My mom was a mechanical engineer who had graduated from Stanford University at a time when there were very, very few Black students. So my parents were both, in a sense, very ambitious professionals who came to New York City as young people and, you know, had grown up with and continued to face different kinds of segregation and barriers in their chosen professions. My dad was a, a graphic designer who came to New York to study at Pratt Institute. So yet another professional field with very few African-Americans in it. So my growing up with them, and I lived mainly in Harlem, that's where we lived most of the time when I was young, my growing up with them was really sort of an, an exercise in thinking along the lines of what used to be called race men. That is, my parents were both really taken up with and concerned with the progress that Black Americans were making in different social and economic and political spheres in the U.S., that was our dinner table talk every night. And of course, as a kid, I thought it was incredibly boring. I thought that they were obsessed and I just didn't understand why we always had to have the same conversation. It was always something like, oh, did you hear so-and-so became the first black partner in such and such law firm? Like there was just that kind of conversation. But the ironic thing now is that, you know, years later, and in part through my undergraduate education at Yale, I came to realize that actually they were right, that there was a lot to say and think about with respect to race in the United States. And so I kind of exited the the bubble that I'd been in as a kid and that I'd been in in part because I was going to the United Nations International School as a kid, 
I didn't grow up super attuned to the U.S. political landscape because there was so much emphasis there on thinking globally, really. But once I did emerge from that that bubble, I really actually became intrigued by questions of race. And that really started for me with my undergraduate experience. Well, I remember from the intensive German class that we took together, which I think I was a junior and you were a little bit younger. And I was a freshman, yeah. One thing I remember about you is that, I mean, you've identified yourself as of a child of two African-Americans, but I remember you to be mixed racial and much more complicated than that. Since we're going to talk about race and, and so on, what are you made up of? <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny way to put it. What I know of my family's history, what I know of the, the family tree from my parents is that like a lot of other African-Americans, we have non-African ancestry. So it's very common. And I've learned since that a century ago, demographers were estimating that three quarters of the Black American population was made up of people who were actually mixed race, who had some European or Native American ancestry. So my ancestry is a lot like that. In addition to African ancestry, I have English ancestry, and I have Chinese ancestry, and I have some American Indian ancestry. But as has been typical in our nation's history, Thanks to the one-drop rule, to that social convention, my parents and I've always understood ourselves as Black. And I think that when we knew each other, Nathaniel, in college, it was the beginning of a journey, actually, where I was being exposed to different ways of thinking about race and racial identity. So I remember, for example, I did my junior year abroad in college in Paris. And when I was in France and people would ask me what I was and I would say, je suis noir, they would say, no, you're not black, you know, and I would say, really? And they would say, no, you're métis, you're, you're mixed. And then years later, when I worked in Central America and Honduras as a foreign service officer, I had colleagues there, Hondurans, who would say to me, oh, you're not mixed, you're white. So I sort of had these experiences as a young person where people debated my racial identity and interpreted what my race should be in different ways. And that contributed a lot to my eventually deciding to study people's beliefs about race. That time at Eunice, which is a pretty mixed place. My wife's sister went there, for example. I went to a graduation ceremony once. No kidding. No kidding. Okay. How did people regard you there? Was there clarity about it or... or confusion? I think that there, most people understood me as a mixed race person. So most people, for example, I think I, I had a, a classmate, an African classmate who once said to me, she was like, Anne, why do you say you're black? Like, you don't look black to me. You, you know, you look like a mixed person to me. And I think for most of the kids coming from countries around the world, which don't have a one drop rule the way the U.S. does, in their way of thinking, I would be understood to be a mixed person, and they couldn't understand why I would only identify as Black and not with any of the other components of my my ancestry. So I don't think it was particularly confusing there. I was just a mixed person. And the, the other thing about it there was that I didn't stand out in any way. In that kind of international setting with kids from Latin America or the Middle East or South Asia, I was just another brown person like most of the other kids in the school. So I wasn't particularly marked as a minority or anything like that, which I realized once I got to college, once I got to Yale, I realized what a, a blessing in a sense that had been to not have had to stick out or be slated for any different or particular kind of treatment because of the color of my skin. Because once I got to college to an all-white, predominantly white institution like Yale, I met a lot of other African-American students who were much more scarred, I'll say, by the experiences that they had. Often, you know, it was Yale. So these were kids, for the most part, coming from pretty privileged backgrounds, and they had gone to often overwhelmingly white high schools, in which they were often made to feel like second-class citizens or, or others. And so I was really lucky that at the UN school, I really never had any of that kind of second-class treatment. I remember at Yale that often, not always, but often African-American students, black students sat separately from white students or other students. Not, it was notable. Did, where did you find yourself in the, in the dining halls? Oh. <laughs> That's a great question. There's a book with the title. It, it, it is something like, why are all the black, black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? And one of the things that the, the author points out is that 
you know, we ask the question, why are all the black kids sitting together? But we don't have to ask the question, why are all the white kids sitting together? Those are two, two pieces of the same puzzle. And for me personally at Yale, I tended to seek out, I would say my, my closest friends, interestingly enough, were other women of color from New York City, like me. I was very good friends with a Haitian woman and a Puerto Rican woman. I would say there was some of my closest friends there. So kind of not surprising. I think especially in, you know, at college, but also a place like Yale, where I think people sometimes feel intimidated or feel like, you know, they don't really belong somehow. I think it was pretty common for people to seek each other out. And in fact, that's something else I noticed in my dorm with predominantly white kids from the Midwest. They were like public school kids from the Midwest. They felt like they didn't fit in at Yale and a lot of them clung together. So I think that was happening in a lot of ways that might've been more or less visible to us. Yeah. I think we all try to find our tribe or whatever the term that you want to use for it. I've probably found the nerds or something like that. (laughs) You studied econ and poli-sci there. Is that right? Yes, I did. Yeah. What did you take from that? What's left? Hmm. That's a, a really great question. So I so I came to Yale from the UN school very much with an interest in international relations and interested in some kind of career in diplomacy. So I uh, you know I, I gravitated right to right away to political science because of international relations. But during my junior year abroad, I had the occasion in France to take some coursework on international political economy and economic development, and I found that really grabbed my attention. So I really got interested in thinking about a career in, in development in one way or another. So when I came back to Yale for my senior year, I took as much econ as I could to be able to graduate with a, a they had a major then in like political science and econ together, did that. And then I went straight to Columbia School of International Public Affairs to do a degree with a focus on international economic development. So I, I kind of took that straight with me. The funny thing is that, you know, as I was graduating from Columbia, I, I realized a bit too late that it was going to be hard for me to get a job overseas in international development without having prior overseas experience. There was kind of a catch-22 situation where you couldn't really get a job very easily in development unless you had overseas experience, but it was hard to get that overseas experience and so forth. So my, that trajectory meant that I, I stayed in the States. I worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York as an economist with a focus on the external debt burdens of developing countries. So I, I kind of took that econ poli-sci training with me to the Fed and then from there to the U.S. Foreign Service. You chose to do that Foreign Service exam and join the Foreign Service. What was that experience like for you? I did. And I, I will really never forget the Foreign Service exam experience. So so first you have the the written exam, which having done a master's in international affairs at Columbia, I was in a good position to, to pass that exam. So that that worked out. And then I got called in for the oral exam, which is an all-day assessment. I'm sure it's changed somewhat since then, but I'm guessing that a lot of it is probably still the same, would be my guess. It was an all-day in-person assessment in, in Washington. They would do things like you would do role play. So you would sit with one or two examiners and you would pretend to be you know, staffing a U.S. embassy in some fictional country and they would pretend to be nationals from that country and you would have to negotiate something. I remember starting off one of those faux negotiation sessions with just making small talk with them about how lovely the weather was and, you know, whatever fictional country we were in, and which I think they appreciated. So I think that they were looking not just for your, let's say, some hard negotiating skills, but they were sort of looking for this overall package of, you know, could you create a working environment or relationship that was conducive to making progress together? But the the piece of the exam that I'll really never forget was a group exercise where all of us, there were, I think maybe eight of us candidates, were put in a room together around a round table. There was a ring of examiners sitting around us so they could observe us from the outer ring. And we had to pretend to all be together the staff of a U.S. embassy, and we had to make some decisions about the budget. We were each given a project that we had to champion. And two things I remember about that. One was I, you know, I was willing to kind of sacrifice my project and say, look, this is the project I'm putting forward. Here are the pros and cons. But if people don't think that's where we need to go with the funding, let's get other priorities. So rather than, in a sense, trying to win, let's say, by like insisting on all costs that my project get funded that I focused more on the relational work of helping the group get to a decision, you know, sort of prod it along. And I think that was ultimately rewarded. The other thing that I remember from that session was that 
I think that all the other candidates were men when I did this. This would have been in 92. And I doubt that it would be so lopsided today. But I think that when I took the oral exam, the other seven or so candidates were men. And I remember as I was making the pitch for my project in this group negotiating session, one of the guys, I think he was in the Air Force at the time, was sort of snickering at me from across the table. I didn't let it phase me. I you know, kept doing my thing. But at the end, when we were done for the day, I asked him, why were you kind of laughing at me? And he was like, oh, because you were so cute while you were doing your presentation. Like he just didn't take it seriously or couldn't take seriously like a woman pitching something. And of course, the great pleasure for me was that I got picked for the Foreign Service and he didn't. So <laughs> it had a happy ending as far as I was concerned. Well, maybe the judges were smarter than we might have worried they would be. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Maybe they picked up on the snickering too. So yeah, well, <laughs> those are good things to hold on to when you consider your career and, and the directions that life takes us. So where did the Foreign Service take you? Central America, right? Is That's that right. right. So yeah. the Foreign Service, so after several months of basically basic training in, in Washington, or rather at, at the National Foreign Affairs Training Center in Boston, Virginia, um, I was posted to Honduras, to Tegucigalpa. My instructors in the course suggested that they were doing me a, a solid. They were doing me a favor. They hadn't sent me to like a major visa mill site, like, a, let's say, like a Seoul or a Kingston or Mexico City. So... This was, I think, a relatively slower pace. But I spent, I think, about two years there. No, I, I guess it may be a little over a year. And then I was sent, I did a short-term tour of duty at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations uh, back in my hometown of New York. And that was, you know, that was interesting. I mean, I went basically from doing visa work in Honduras. I was the, the immigrant visa consul at the embassy to the situation in New York, which was basically a lot of sitting in on meetings and you know, at the UN and note-taking. So pretty different experiences. What were you thinking about your career at that point? Were you contented or discontented or what was in your head? So I was starting to realize that in the foreign service, a lot of the work I was doing, and certainly at that entry level, you know, maybe it would be different if I get stuck in longer, but actually I don't quite think so. That it struck me that a lot of the work was very short-term oriented. There was often a, a time horizon, which was pretty immediate. Like, you're going to attend this meeting. You have these talking points. You're going to need to report back to Washington. You'll be this conveyor of information. But I felt like there wasn't a lot of time or opportunity to really step back and think a little more deeply about the context we were operating in. I felt like I was sent to Honduras without much more than probably like a tour guide book about the, the country. There wasn't an expectation that you would immerse yourself deeply in the history, the society, knowledge of the economy, you know, any of that. It was sort of what might fit on two sides of a flyer, a cheat sheet or fact sheet about the, the country. So the longer I stayed in, the longer I felt personally that I missed a different kind of work, the kind of work that I had done as an academic, or I should say in my, my master's program or undergrad for that matter. And that was just, you know, the kind of work that we get to do when we are researching something more deeply. We get to really spend time with the question, dig around and, and write about it. And that got me thinking that I was probably interested in going to get a, a PhD. And what, what happened for me was I caught kind of a neat break in that when I was at the U.S. Mission to the U.N. in New York, one day I bumped into the dean of Columbia School of International Public Affairs, where I had done a master's pretty recently. And he was like, oh, Anne, you're in New York. We're looking for a new assistant dean of the school. You know, you would be great. Are you interested? And I kind of saw that as my chance to, to pivot, to, to transition away from the Foreign Service into the academic environment. And so I, I left the Foreign Service and I took that job with Columbia, but really with an idea to it being the the launching pad for my applying for PhD program. So I spent, I think, two years as a, as a dean at Columbia while I was taking the GRE and I took some math courses to prepare me for graduate school because I decided I wanted to study demography or the study of population and that it would be helpful to me to beef up my quantitative skills. So, um, so I ultimately made that transition. And even though I had never plan to become an academic, it turned out to be a really good fit for, for me personally. I think it really suits me. What does an assistant dean do? 
So in, in that situation, I was involved, first of all, in recruiting. So I would go out on the road on these sort of road trips along with representatives from other public policy and international affairs schools like Tufts or Johns Hopkins and so forth. So we would sort of band together and do these sort of international affairs, public affairs presentations in different cities. So I was recruiting. I was also on the admissions team, so making decisions about who to admit to the, the master's program. And then also I was advising students. So I was meeting with students in the program and helping them kind of chart their programs. You liked all that or it was a stepping stone? For me, it was more of a stepping stone. I, I enjoyed doing it. It was fine. But I knew that I didn't want to do it forever. I know there are some people who love educational administration, who who really love being in those kinds of roles. For me, that wasn't the most interesting part of the academy. I went back to try to get a PhD after a number of years out in the workforce. I found it very hard to go back to being a student at that level especially because some of the professors weren't that terribly much older than me. And there was that gap between us in knowledge and, and just sort of hierarchy. How was it to, to go back <laughs> as a PhD right. student, which a lot of people do immediately after college? But you, I mean, you've done the master's program. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I think my experience was exactly the, the opposite of yours in that I thought that going for a PhD after having worked in the Foreign Service and the Fed and all that, I thought it was great because I felt like, you know, after years of working where, you know, you need to show up at 9 a.m. or whatever it is in the office, you need to be in the office every day and so forth. And this was, you know, needless to say, before the pandemic, before Zoom, before all kinds of tools that it made it easier for people to telecommute. So I, I really enjoyed the luxury of being a student. The hours were pretty much mine. I mean, yeah, I had to show up for classes for the first two years, but I really actually enjoyed the, the different schedule. And again, the opportunity just to kind of take my time to delve deeply into questions that were interesting to me. I know that your dissertation, which turned into a book, is on the matter of race. I'm curious how much connected that was to just you being conscious of race from an early age, your parents clearly talking about it, the experiences you recounted already. Why was that the academic subject that you spent a bunch of years working on? You're right. It is a curious thing because I came to the academy from the Foreign Service, basically. So I had been pursuing this career in international affairs that really didn't have hardly anything to do with, with race. But what happened actually was while I was still in the Foreign Service in Honduras, the process was gearing up in the United States to start to revisit the U.S.'s official racial categories. Now, the U.S. is an unusual country. We're, we're pretty weird in that we actually have official racial categories. The Office of Management and Budget in its Statistical Directive 15 established in 1977 this set of racial and ethnic categories that were intended to facilitate the, the civil rights work of the federal government, but meant also that state and local governments use it, academics use it, journalists, and so forth. So they really kind of took this unusual step of setting a national taxonomy, basically, of racial and ethnic groups. So that had been established in the 1970s. In the mid to late 1990s, there was this idea that maybe those categories needed to change. Now, what the categories were originally stemming from the 1970s were you had white, you had black, you had American Indian or Alaska Native, you had Asian or Pacific Islander. Those were basically the race categories. And you had something apart that was called an ethnic category for Hispanic or Latino. But up until the late 90s, those had been all mutually exclusive choices. So you could only be one thing. You could not be more than one thing. You had to choose one of those boxes when you filled out the census. But there was sort of this growing grassroots movement in the 80s and especially in the 90s of people pressing to be able to identify with more than one race. You know, interracial marriage was growing in the U.S., the multiracial population was growing, and people were, were pressing to be able to choose more than one box. So that that debate, that movement was percolating while I was still in the Foreign Service, and I was following it from afar with a lot of interest. And I was very interested in it, again, because of my personal experiences with 
almost like the confusion you could say that people had about my racial identity and the sort of fluidity with which they saw that. So I had this kind of personal interest in that question. And I remember reading an article in the, the New Yorker that came out about this process of rethinking the official categories. And I remember saying to someone next to me, I was like, oh, they should put me in charge of that. I would totally like, I would fix that. Like I, I, I would have that all figured out. <laughs> so I, I got interested in that question. And so when I was thinking about going to graduate school, I was thinking what I would really, really like to study actually are questions related to racial classification, like in official settings like the census, or we could also talk about the classifications by schools or in medical offices, other kinds of institutions. And I was interested in how people themselves made choices about how to identify themselves when they could choose for themselves the categories. And so all of that led me to a graduate program, again, with this focus on demography, where I could really get into the data, like get into the census data and study the choices that people made about how to identify themselves. And what turned out, what started off as a very quantitative sort of demographic and statistical approach eventually gave way to this more qualitative kind of study where after looking the census data, analyzing that statistically, I started to get interested in what people actually just believed about race. Like what is it that people thought that they were reporting when they checked off a box for themselves on the census? And so the dissertation that I ended up doing in graduate school at Princeton ended up being really a study of people's beliefs about race or what I call people's concepts of race. I think of it as being a whole web of beliefs that we have or like a working model that we all have in our heads about what race is. So how do we think races differ from each other? How do we think we can know what race a person is a member of? Where did the races come from in the first place? So all that kind of jumble of often vague notions that we have in our head was what I ended up studying in graduate school. It feels like the casual thinker about race like me most people, I would say. Think of it probably as fairly simple, like like the red, white, yellow, brown sort of thing. Of course, whenever you look at something closely, especially with human beings, it tends to be much more complicated, much more of a rainbow fractal as you go down into it, I think. Tell me about what turns into that first book of yours. What do you find from all that? work statistically and qualitatively about how we conceive of race? So I would say right off the bat, what is really striking is that even in a country like ours, where we talk about race all the time and where we, for very good reasons, are concerned about the role that race plays in our society, that we actually have surprisingly fuzzy ideas about what race actually is. And so as part of my dissertation research that led to the book, The Nature of Race, what I found was that, and and this was a a book, I should say, where I focused on interviewing faculty in colleges. So I was particularly interested in talking to biologists and anthropologists, because those are two disciplines that have historically played a really important role in, in defining what race is. But I also wanted to interview their undergraduate students. So I wanted to get both the professors, but also get the young people in the college classroom who were learning from these professors and sort of hearing about how they were thinking about race. And I also studied what high school textbooks are teaching young people about race. So all these sort of different takes on how people define race, how they think of this concept, what they're learning. And so what I found from talking to young people, to students, was that they were pretty split. On one hand, for a lot of people, race is just simply some biological fact about us. So what I found was that a lot of people, um, when I first asked them to define race, they would talk about it as being um, a matter of biology. So you know, they would say, well, race, it's just kind of like the group that you belong to based on your skin color or based on your genes. Maybe some might say based on your blood. So there was often this idea that it was this totally taken for granted category. A lot of people would admit that they didn't exactly know how we could tell if somebody was part of a race or not. That is, people were unclear about, you know, can we just analyze people's DNA and that that just tells us what race a person is? But they felt pretty confident that scientists understood this. So even if they personally didn't 
understand how it worked, they felt pretty confident that there was probably some very scientific objective method for determining a person's race that was out there. And then another thing that was striking to me speaking to college students was that a lot of them also like to talk about race as a matter of culture and almost like lifestyle choices. So people would say things like, well, your race, it has to do with like how you dress or how you talk or the music that you listen to. And it was almost as if they wanted to portray race as this just kind of a, a free choice that everybody has. You just sort of choose to live your life in a certain way, and that is your race. And it struck me that it was a way of desensitizing the race concept, because rather than really engage with race as a history of classifying people that comes to us from the era of slavery and colonialism, and that was a way in which Europeans divided up the world and divided up particularly the people that they were seeking to dominate, that by talking about race is just a matter of your cultural choices, the young people I was speaking with were, they kind of wanted to turn it into something that was lighter, that didn't have a whole dark history behind it, that wasn't imposed on people, but that was just kind of a matter of, of free choice. So that was a really interesting way to do it. So since then, I've worked also on Italy, and I've done this research in Italy to kind of contrast how young Europeans today think about race compared to Americans. So I, I did these interviews in Italy and there you don't find that same idea that, oh, your race is just your culture and it just has to do with how you dress and the music you listen to. So there's also something about the American context where people like to believe that as individuals, we just determine things. We just choose our, our, our outcomes. We get to decide what we are. That, that had an appeal for the young people I spoke with in the US that wasn't quite there in Europe. And in that uh, mention of Italy, you're talking about your recent book, which is kind of more comparative and co-authored with an Italian professor, I guess. Yes, an Italian sociologist, Marcello Maneri. I'm wondering now, after two book length and many article visitations of these kind of concepts, how do you think about race now? And how is how you think about it different than sort of how we broadly in the U.S. think about it, particularly related to politics? Yes. So I definitely think about race as being a social construct. And that is a way of thinking that is widespread, I think, in the academy, particularly in the social sciences. But I will say from my own research, speaking with academics as well, that in some ways, it may, may be more widespread as a mantra that people like to say than as something that people, even in the academy, really deeply understand and embrace. So let me just say something about what that means, because I think a lot of people have heard this phrase, race is a social construct, but don't necessarily feel deeply comfortable with what that means or, or that they deeply understand what that means. The idea of saying that race is a social construct, in a nutshell, is just that race and the racial categories that we're also used to are at the end of the day categories that we've created so that race is an idea that human beings have had about how to describe other human beings and the categories that we have like white black yellow and red are categories that we made up but that are not anchored in some objective reality out there and this is something that has become only clearer in the two decades since I've done this work. The more and more that we know, for example, about the human genome, the clearer it is. It was pretty clear to folks back in 2000, but it's even clearer today that, that the human body doesn't come in these four flavors, yellow, black, red, and white. That genetic variation is so much more complex and subtle that we can't easily put the you know 8 billion plus of us into four categories and have those categories really have any meaning when it comes to our biological characteristics. So, so by saying that race is a social construct, it's really pushing us away from those old beliefs about race as biology. And it also means embracing an understanding of kind of the historical process that led us to the categories that we have now, that a lot of people think that that race is somehow an idea that's already always been with us, but it's not, it's not universal and it's not timeless. We can really pinpoint how it sort of comes together in the 1700s. I 
feel like I carry in my head both that notion that race is a social construct, which I heard in college and subsequently, it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I've heard there's more genetic, genetic diversity in Africa than there is elsewhere, even among people that everyone might think of as all Africans, right? But I also carry, as we have through this conversation, some acknowledgement that that we see race when we look at each other. We can't seem to escape the fact that this construct affects so much about us and how we see each other. Do you feel the same way? Those both coexist in a certain way? And how do you think about that more theoretically? Right. And I, I think that is one of the things that makes it so complicated and so challenging to really parse our racial concepts and really try to get to the nitty gritty of what race is. Because in a nutshell, what we're saying is that while race is not biologically real, there are not these sort of biological or genetic groupings in the human species that correspond to what we think of races, but race is socially real. It is one of those kinds of categories, like many other social categories that we make up that are not anchored in our genes, but they are real. And to give you another example, right, we can think of religious groups, right? I mean, religious groups are socially real groups that have tremendous importance in the world, right? We know people live and die because of their religious membership. But we don't think that those groupings are anchored in our genes. So they're socially real, but to be real, they don't need to be biological. And so that's sort of the paradox about of race, that race is presented to us as if it were biologically real. And so to understand that it's not, we really kind of have to do this work like swimming upstream of going against the many messages that we get, you know, whether we talk about sports or educational testing or all kinds of messages we often get about how race is anchored in some way in our genes. I was going to also say in terms of the question of seeing, and I, I, I think you're really right to hit on this because, you know, often when we are teaching, let's say in our sociology classes or biology classes, that race is not real, people will say, but how can you say that? I, I can see people's race. I can look at this person and I can see that person is Asian. I can see this person is white. I can see that person is, is black. So putting aside the, the fact that actually, and increasingly, we actually can't tell people what they are by looking at them. And sort of my whole life is the experience of being a person who is not read racially in a very easy or direct way that people often don't quite know what to make of me, depending on where I am in the world. But even putting aside those sorts of cases of ambiguity, what we really have to understand that what we are doing, when we think we're just seeing a person's race, just observing it factually, is that what we're actually doing is sort of looking at people's bodies for certain key bits of information. And then we're running those key selected bits of information through this kind of program or filter that we have in our brains, this sort of cultural filter, which is telling us, oh, if you are in the United States and you see a person with dark skin, that person is black. They are not Middle Eastern. They are not South Asian. In your world, they are black people. To give you another example, people will say things like, well, you know, I can tell the difference between a Norwegian and a Nigerian. So there, there must be racist. I see white people. I see black people. But the thing is, we see all kinds of physical differences, right? I mean, we can tell the difference between siblings, right? Who are highly genetically related and similar. We can tell differences between Norwegians and Italians, but we tend to think of them as being members of the same race. We can see differences between Japanese people and Pakistanis, but we say that they're part of the same race. So it's not that seeing physical differences between people automatically clues us into knowing what race they are. What we're doing instead is looking at people and we're running certain things about them, their hair texture, their eye shape, their skin color into this cultural program we have, which tells us, okay, I see a Pakistani person. Oh yeah, they go in the Asian box, at least in the United States. In the UK, they wouldn't be in the same race box as let's say a Japanese person. So it's all, it depends. And it seems like it, as you move South, it blends more and more. It's impossible to draw lines, even though we constantly do. Is there an analogy with gender at all? Instead of four categories, let's say there's two that we've kind of grown up with, but when you look at it, there's biologically and socially a lot more complexity to the to the notion of gender, the reality of gender than than was kind of commonly thought about. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on gender and sex, but but having said that, I do think that there is a real parallel here. 
in a sense, sex, I'll, I'll use that, that older term to mean sort of ideas that we have about or a concept that we have about human bodies being classified into certain types based on their reproductive organs, their, their surface characteristics and all of that. Let's call that um, sex. So for many people, that's like what race is. They think that race is just this sort of straightforward, objective accounting about human bodies. We look at the human body and we say, oh, that's a black body. This is a white body. So in that sense, race and sex are very similar. But actually, in the same way that we realize now that actually human bodies don't come in just four physical types that we can easily sort people into, that increasingly we're understanding that sex also doesn't come simply in two types. As I said, this is not my field, and I think that there are kind of debates out there about how many categories would it make sense to use to talk about sex? Do we need something like an intersex category, a third category? Do we need yet other categories? And I think that what this shows us is that both sex and race basically are ideas that we have about how best to divide up the human species, about how best to classify people. But at the end of the day, that is ultimately what they are. They are ideas, they are concepts, they're beliefs that we have, and they reflect our imposing, often with the best of intentions, but imposing our best guess in some ways on on how to divide up the human species. But they're not anchored in, in stone and they're not determined fully by our bodies. I know that you spent some time consulting to the Census Bureau on matters related to what we're talking about. Can you tell me about that experience? What were you doing and what did you learn? So I served for two terms from, I think, 2013 to 2019 on the U.S. Census Bureau's National Advisory Committee on Racial, Ethnic, and Other Populations. And what this advisory committee is, is a group uh, largely of academics, but also folks who are not necessarily academics, but who are representatives of or involved in some way with different racial and ethnic constituencies in the U.S. So there might be folks on the committee who work with community organizations that serve the Mexican-American community in California or that work with the Arab-American community in Michigan or so forth. So there's a sort of a mix of that community representation in academics. And and basically what we did and what that committee continues to do, I'm no, I'm no longer on it having finished two terms, but well, the idea is really to help advise the Census Bureau as they think about the ways in which they may revamp their questions on race and ethnicity. So it's basically their way of getting input in a very concentrated way from folks with some expertise in that area. And so, you know, our committee was really involved over the, the kind of the 10-year period between the 2010 census and the 2020 census in thinking about new ways in which we might ask the question on race. You know, there were ideas that were put forth that the Trump administration eventually stopped, but that now are being picked up again and reconsidered under the Biden administration. So we were kind of bringing expertise to bear on these what are ultimately public policy and then political decisions. One of the things that former President Trump did when he started running for office is he elevated racial or related matters in a way that was much more blatant than it had been for a while. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, yeah. So he played what we used to call the race card and affected our politics a great deal, I think. He ended up moving a lot of white people under his banner, particularly non-college educated white people. But he's part of kind of a redefinition of how we politically deal with race. Like when Glenn Youngkin ran for governor recently of Virginia, post-Trump, one of the things that he did was try to say, I want parents to have more of a role in how race is taught in our schools. Really a reaction to a complexification of race that is kind of in the stream that you're part of, right? Like, let's recognize that race has been important. Let's recognize that it's complicated. There's a lot going on there. How do you think about how race works in our politics currently? Yeah. So I I think that I would characterize what the former President Trump did as, in a sense, taking us back in time. So it's not quite that he 
introduced race in a way that it hadn't previously been part of American politics. But he basically tried to take us back to a previous era. More like a George Wallace running in this in 1968 or something like that, where he's really coming out of a pro-segregation viewpoint. And not only, I would say, taking us back to the late 1800s, to the Immigration Exclusion Acts of the late 19th century. For me, as somebody who teaches on race, one of the things that was most surprising to me about his tenure, his stance, was that with his sort of Muslim travel plan, you know, he wanted to go back to a chapter of U.S. history where we excluded people because of their race. We excluded them from immigrating to this country because of race, starting with the Chinese in the late 1800s. That was, I think, a chapter of American history that pretty much everybody thought had been closed. You know, everybody who taught that history or, you know, everybody teaching basic introductory courses, I think, on the history of race in the U.S. or sociology of race. You know, I was teaching about those Immigration Exclusion Acts for years, but it's something that was that was part of the past. So so it was very striking to do that. The other thing that I think that Trump did with respect to race was that he took the lid off what was already a simmering brew of white grievance. And in that sense, he was bringing out into the open, into the daylight, a certain strain of thought about race in the U.S. that I think predated him, that helped catapult him into the White House, and that he and like-minded fellow travelers have since Banned as well, so they fueled it further, and and I think made it an even stronger phenomenon than it was before. But he didn't invent it, and so maybe not everybody would agree with me. But if there's a silver lining, I think to his impact on race discourse in the U.S. is that I think he he said things that other people were thinking but didn't feel emboldened to say, and that I think it's ultimately better to hear those voices, to hear those ideas, to get them out in the open, in the public square, so that they can be debated rather than them remaining kind of in the realm of private mutterings over the family dinner table. It feels like one of the fault lines is around whether public policy can be race conscious in order to repair a lot of things that race conscious policies in a bad way had done in the past. How do you think about that? It's such a tricky matter right now. Yeah. So I, I have an article on this co-authored with a French political scientist. And the title of our article is From Sword to Plowshare, that, you know, the idea of taking what was this instrument of racial oppression, which was race consciousness in the U.S., you know, if we think about the way race was built into our, our laws and into the Constitution and so forth and so on, you know, race was part of our policy from the very beginning of the inception of the United States as a way to exclude people, to to privilege whites to the detriment of others. So then we get to the civil rights period where now we've got to take this sort of race and beat it into a plowshare some kind of a plowshare for creating a more just and egalitarian society. And I think there is a real question of how do you do that? You know, in in Europe, where I've done research, the attitude has largely been, okay, we can never rehabilitate race. So no kind of race consciousness can ever come to any good. So let's just ban it from the public square. Let's just not talk about race. Let's take it out of our constitutions. Let's not have it figure in any policies or laws. But in the US, the idea has been like, no, to acknowledge there still is a legacy of all of that racial inequality. And so to grapple with that, we're going to have to grapple with the reality that race still lives on in our citizens' minds and and hearts and, and actions. And we have to come to to grips with that. You have a line somewhere in the conclusion of your recent book about whether race conscious programs and speech can further an agenda of social justice, or is there a problem of reifying an ideology of difference? That's part of, of what's in that sentence. That seemed to me to get to the heart of this problem. It sometimes feels like our political tools are so blunt that they don't recognize these kind of complexities that you've studied. Do you think we can, in the long run, have race-conscious policies without 
I mean, do we need to have them in order to fix the things that are out there? Or can we, is there a way to move past that at some point? Like the current Supreme Court has tried to lead us to giving them the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I don't think that we can address the continued inequalities that characterize American life around race unless we use race-conscious approaches. There's just sort of no other way than to grapple with it. Having said that, I think that there are race-conscious strategies that we use that sometimes do run the risk of reifying racial beliefs so that, in a sense, we've got to think carefully about how we draw attention to race, how we're conscious about race, because we've got to do it in a way which, at the same time, makes sure to communicate to people that race is not some biological objective reality, that it is a social construct. And I think that's where we've really fallen down on the job in the United States. Because from my interviews here and my continued teaching, I think that we haven't really invested much in thinking about how would we even do this? Like, how how do we talk about race? How do we have race-conscious policies? How do we have race-conscious education in ways that doesn't end up just reinforcing this belief that somehow there are these objective races there. As a country, we just haven't spent any time invested in thinking about how we shape people's concepts of race. It's interesting because sometimes people ask me, they're like, well, Anne, don't you think that, you know, things have changed a lot? I mean, we had Barack Obama as president and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, I always tell people that What I think has changed the most with respect to race over the last several decades, and I'll go back to the civil rights movement, so not just with the the presidency of Barack Obama, what I think has been a sea change in American life has been this basically reevaluation of racial segregation and white supremacist idea. So that, you know, starting in in the 50s and the 1960s with the civil rights movement, Americans on the whole come to this new thinking for the most part where they decide that what seemed perfectly fine before, that is to privilege white Americans over other people, that is the idea that came into question. And and so what was really the revolution was saying, no, actually, people should have equal rights and equal access and equal privileges and so forth, regardless of, of their race. So it was sort of a sea change in a sense in our rejecting ideas of hierarchy. But what the civil rights movement, let alone the Obama administration, didn't do was start actually a national conversation about what we actually believe race is in the first place. And so we've effectively left intact all these beliefs about races as natural, distinct, very different groups from each other. We think that, you know, these are groups that maybe they just have natural differences in their intelligence or tendency towards crime or sports ability or sexual behavior. We've left intact that whole raft of thinking that we, you know, social science, we call it essentialist thinking, that is thinking that certain groups just have these fixed natures or essences. And by leaving all of that thinking intact, we can't really move on because people are still walking around as much as they may believe that we should give everybody an equal chance. If we're all still walking around believing that blacks are just sort of naturally better athletes and whites are just naturally more gifted intellects or Asians are smarter than everybody, we are still walking around with ideas that are the breeding grounds for all kinds of forms of inequality. Governor DeSantis of Florida, who is one of the most skilled of the culture warriors around this, he passed this Stop Woke Act in Florida, and he's outlawed teaching certain concepts, right, that are in the, in the racial category fit that into your idea of race and and your knowledge about how we've thought about race in this country because he's latched onto something that has a lot of resonance we don't want to teach our young white people that they're inherently racist we don't want to have too much ideology even in the college classroom even though he's pushing a different ideology right how does this fit into your thinking about race in the united states and politics as i understand it what governor desantis and other republican politicians around the the country have been pushing for is basically an education which is cleansed of references to the institutional racism that pervaded the united states history 
they don't want young people to have to think about the ways in which racial inequalities were baked into our government and to the law of the, the land. One of the reasons they give is because it would be apparently psychologically damaging to young white people to, to have that information, to know that, which is an interesting twist on the charge that liberals are the snowflakes, right? So it's, it's kind of an interesting take that young white people are so fragile that, that knowing about the nation's history would be detrimental to their well-being. I think that's kind of a, a new take. But what I see as the good news is that, as far as I can tell, I think that those restrictions on, I guess, talking about things like slavery and so forth actually don't prohibit discussing what race actually is. So I think the kinds of frank conversations that really need to happen about how race is not in our blood or our DNA, that racial groups are categories that we've made up the same way we invented astrological groupings. As far as I can tell, that's not prohibited by these kinds of acts. And, and in fact, they might be fine with that. I mean, if you were designing curricula for young people, Florida, <laughs> Florida, any other place, I assume you would want people to be taught about the history, the history of racism and segregation and systemic racism that is more complicated, perhaps, and racial categories. You would want them to understand something about that. But how do you think we should be schooling our young about these matters? I, you know, I think that we should really be teaching them to understand how so many things that seem to us as just natural or objective facts about the world, let's say even God-given maybe, depending on your, your point of view, that so often these are artifacts that we've created. They're kind of part of a cultural world that we all invent. Everybody does. Everybody around the world is part of some world that is socially created with all kinds of categories and hierarchies and values and, and all of that. And race is no different. I think it's because race continues to be so important in the United States for people's life outcomes. I think that young people should be taught from a very early age that these are groupings that some Europeans back in the 16 and 1700s thought was a pretty good shorthand for describing the kinds of people that they were coming into contact with for the first time. And sometimes not even actually coming into contact, just like reading like tales from travelers and stuff, but that they understand that this was one way in which some people thought you could describe humanity. We know today from what we know about human biology that it's actually not a very good way of parceling up humanity but that it's a habit that we have now that has stuck with us. And we've sort of organized our society around these, these groupings. And so they continue to have all kinds of effects. And I think that that is, in a sense, where the history comes in. Because if we talk about slavery in the U.S., that history, I mean, the, the shape that slavery took in the U.S., a racialized kind of slavery, unlike other sorts of slavery in other times and places, reflected that new idea. And it reinforced that that new idea. So I think that there are a lot of aspects of our nation's history that we can build into this teaching about what is race, the nature of race. It feels like one of the ironies is that the people who are trying to stop us from talking about race in school are the same people that are playing that race card in the political arena, utilizing negative stereotypes of, of, of the other in lots of different ways. One of the things that's happening in the progressive world well, one technique that's been tested a little bit is called the race class narrative, where there's some consultants who feel like you have to bring into the counter narrative of a campaign how to mention the racism that's being used in order to diffuse it and counteract it rather than ignoring it. It actually turns out to be very complicated to figure out if someone's playing this race card in a negative way, how do we communicate in a way that's effective? Politically, does any of what you read or study touch on that kind of aspect of how do we counteract kind of racist moves in our politics? Right, right. That's interesting because that's not my area of expertise of sort of crafting this this kind of politically oriented messaging. So I'm going to give kind of an answer, which I think is probably something of an all-purpose academic answer, and that is to say that 
if you sort of expose this, that is you you bring it to light, that that will go a long way in terms of of leading people to question it and yeah, to, to doubt its its veracity. I think they call it like narrating the dog whistle. Yeah, I like that term. Yeah, that's I think that's absolutely my my inclination to not ignore it, to say, you know, this is what's going on. You know, this is playing on these old stereotypes or those old tropes. That's, you know, that's what it's meant to do. So just be aware that that is the the position that this person is taking. Just acknowledging that race is a construct or so much more complicated, does that undermine a rationale for race conscious policies to repair the ills of race conscious policies? Sure. I know that some people would twist it to be that. I think, for example, of years ago, Ward Connerly in California with this referendum to basically remove mention of race from, from state laws, including higher institutions of higher education and so forth. Um, kind of the, the premise was, well, race isn't real, so we shouldn't talk about it. And that's something you also hear in Europe as well. But I think that understanding the social roots of race, the social construction of race, is perfectly consistent with adopting race-conscious policies, because what race-conscious policies are conscious of are not race as some biological fact about us. It just means consciousness about the place of race in our societies, about the importance that we've given race. It's sort of being conscious about the construct that we've made race to be. So I find it very consistent, in fact. What should I have asked you that I have it? <laughs> Oh, that's a neat question. One thing that I would maybe add has to do with this, what seems this sort of seeming paradox between people who want to ban discussion of race in our nation's history on one hand, also are the first to use sort of subconscious racial stereotypes as part of their electoral strategies. This is not unusual at all. And if I go back again to the European case where you hear a lot of this idea that let's not talk about race, it's so dangerous, and let's you know not, not acknowledge it. That is a view that is basically coming to us from white men you know, in the European context. It's not the view that communities of color, for example, in Europe are taking. Like increasingly, you're seeing movements of, let's say, Black Dutch people, Black French people, and so forth, who want there to be an overt conversation and want to have the opportunity to identify themselves as people of color in different venues. They want that to be recognized in some ways so that they can talk about and articulate their experiences in those societies. So I think it's the same thing here, right? It's, of course, no coincidence at all that the same people who would like race to be banned from certain discussions are more than happy to appeal to it in, in other kinds. It's a very cynical stance. So what does it take for us to get to the place where we can be viewed by the content of our character, not the color of our skin? Mm. So this reminds me of something you asked earlier. Could we eventually get to a place where we, we don't need race conscious policies, where in a sense we don't need to touch on race in the public sphere? I think that as long as we continue to have people really steeped the way Americans are in racial beliefs and ideology, in racial stereotypes, it will be too soon to jettison race-conscious policies. I'll give you even an example. So one that I've used sometimes in my writing. So let's think about witches. That was a social category. That was a real social category of people. If we think back to Salem or something, Witches were real in the sense that they were socially real, that everybody believed some people were witches. And, and it was appropriate then for public policy to and the legal system to act on that belief and all of that. It was appropriate in that, in that worldview where there were really witches. So it would have been great if somebody had passed a civil rights act for witches at that time, which prevented witches from being discriminated against. That would have saved countless people from being burned at the stake and so forth. That would have been a great thing to do. That would have been an appropriate conscious policy, which conscious policy. Today, of course, we really don't need laws preventing discrimination against witches. We don't need a clause in the Constitution, for example, protecting witches from discrimination, right? So we don't need that kind of conscious policy today. But when it comes to race, 
it is too soon to say that race is like our beliefs about witchcraft. It is not. Race is still with us. People believe in it 100%, act on it in every way possible in their daily lives. So as long as race is still with us as a way in which we, we see other people and, and act accordingly, you know, race conscious policies will have their place. I mean, the Supreme Court in removing the teeth from Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act basically said we are already there. And then you saw immediately Republicans take advantage of that opening to pass new laws to try to get away with uh, racial redistricting that that split communities of color. I mean, it's clearly not not done. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, I, I think that one thing that that is that makes things complicated is that so there are the folks who say race doesn't matter in the U.S. anymore from a purely cynical, disingenuous stance, right? They're, in a sense, just saying that to get away with doing those kinds of things. But I think we have to grapple with the fact that there are also large numbers of white Americans who genuinely believe that race is a thing of the past. There are many white Americans, and I think this is, you know, this was really behind the white grievance that the Trump administration was able to tap into, right? There are lots of white people who are out there saying, look, slavery was a long time ago. I didn't own any slaves. I don't know anybody who was a slave. I've heard non-white people say it too. You know, oh, like, int yeah. interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was a long time ago. Yeah. And right. So yeah, the, good, good point. So there are lots of Americans altogether who think that and who think that nobody is really being held back anymore by their race. The laws have all taken care of all of that. And if anything, the real problem is that white people now are being discriminated against against their race. So because there are so many Americans who genuinely believe that, it's it's going to create room for politicians to be able to make hay with that. Do you think that we should be race conscious in our college admissions, which obviously is also in front of the Supreme Court and probably yes. will get overruled if, Oof, yeah. if we had to guess where they're going? Right. I, I do think that um, college admissions, college should keep the right to be race conscious in the way that they are allowed to make decisions about the makeup of their student bodies along all kinds of other ways and show preferences in other ways, alumni, regional, and all of that. But I, I think more importantly, colleges, because in the United States especially, because they're such an important engine of mobility, that colleges should be able to think about what they can do to help address all kinds of forms of inequality. So yes, race should be something you should be taking into account, gender, class, disability status, and, and so forth. I think that colleges should have a free hand with that and not just for, for race. Well, Anna, I can't tell you what an honor it's been to get to oh, see you, you again and chat at this length. And I appreciate your generosity with your time. Is there anything else you want to say? No, just that it has really been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you also for giving me this opportunity to think about how the work that I do as an academic might actually have some wider resonance for a broader public. And I really, I look forward to continuing the conversation with you now that we've reconnected. <laughs> thank you much. That was Anne Morning. She's at as.nyu.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.